Hello everyone, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. This is the fourth uh, in the new Arab webinar series and this evening you're joining us for Beyond Minneapolis, Black Lives Matter shines a light on global racism and police brutality from London to Jerusalem. For those who are new, uh, the New Arab is a progressive and diverse London-based news organization covering the Muna region with a focus on democratic transition, human rights and social and economic justice. My name is Malia Bouatia and I will be chairing the panel this evening. We're very excited to be hosting uh, some incredibly inspiring speakers this evening, uh, Marcia Rigg and Lubna Khutami. Uh, who may be divided by the Atlantic, but whose struggles are very much aligned. Following the brutal murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police uh, in May, local outrage over the death of yet another black man at the hands of, the st of state forces grew into a global Black Lives Matter movement. Mass protests in the US have forced urgent conversations on systematic racism and police brutality to the centre. These developments have also encouraged many to look at their own countries to interrogate the repressive practices of state forces and have empowered the organisation of movements against them. In the UK, where black people are over twice as likely to die in police custody and are more likely to be stopped and searched, Growing demonstrations are demanding an end to structural racism and police violence. In the Middle East and North Africa, the question of state repression has also been at the forefront of uprisings and social movements. Protests have, have already uh, had already been taking place across the Mena region for many months um, and have been met with aggressive and often fatal repression by police and military forces. And when Labour Member of Parliament Rebecca Long Bailey was removed from her post uh, in the shadow cabinet over claims that the killers of George Floyd had learned their tactics from Israeli secret services um, who are known to use them against Palestinians in the occupied territories, this raised questions about the transnational police cooperation. If state forces are perfecting their repression through the sharing of information and training, then resistance to this should also transcend borders. So without further ado, uh, I want to introduce our speakers who'll shed further light uh, on some of these issues on a local, national and even international level. Um, Marcia Rigg, who is the sister of Sean Rigg, who died in police custody in 2008 following prolonged restraint by police officers in Brixton, London, um, is also a leading member of the United Families and Friends campaign, a coalition of those affected by the deaths in police police prison migration and psychiatric custody in the UK. Um, our other speaker is uh, Lubna Qutami, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of California in Los Angeles. Uh, Qutami is also uh, the former executive director of the Arab Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco and a founder and former international general coordinator of the Palestinian Youth movement. Thank you both for joining us. Um, I think to kickstart the discussion, I want to ask you, Lubna, um, to perhaps give us a little insight into the current situation in the US and the impacts of the protests, uh, especially following months of uh, COVID-19 related lockdown. 
Uh, well, thank you, Malia. And I'm very honored to be here today and to be speaking alongside Marsha. Um, I think your question is something that, you know, if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have said that this is just really such an incredibly inspiring moment. I still feel that way. Uh, but as you've of the state um sorry look, you, you... i think you just cut um we, we lost you briefly um perhaps if you can start from from the beginning <laughs> apologies no, no worries i'm sorry about that um so i i just wanted to say that i think that this is an, a deeply inspiring uh, moment here in the united states uh We seem to be losing uh, Lubna, likely due to connection problems. Okay, I, I'll, I could try to work on it if that's okay. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. We can hear you now, Lubna. Perhaps. If oh, you okay. Yeah. So I was just saying that I think it's a it's a really important, incredible time here in the United States. We are experiencing mass mobilization across U.S. cities that of course do have a spontaneous character, but that do have a very consistent message um, around the importance of uh, black life, around resisting state violence, defunding police, and investing in communities. And I think that that is something that has been felt and been worked on by organizers for decades, but it's really kind of coming to a boiling point right now. And of course, that is no small part due to how the coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, made so many people realize the failures of the state and the very racialized ways that the state privileges certain communities in life over other uh, communities. And how do you feel about the current state of repression? Like what has been the response from the state? We hear of curfews being introduced, of arrests, um, of uh, physical violence towards protesters. Well, I think, you know, on the one hand, you know, it's always disappointing to see the arrests, the violence, um, but it's also expected. And this is exactly why people are rising up, right? Um, there's been for so long, this state, every time communities rise up against a police officer who has murdered uh, an innocent uh, person of color, specifically a black person, the, 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 the discourse always kind of stays the same, which is it was one bad cop, it's a few bad apples, it was a mistake, they thought that they were under attack. And what communities are saying out on the streets is that police are not failing to do their job. They're doing exactly what they were intended to do. They are being funded to come out here and hunt people of color, specifically black communities. It is, they have created an industry um, in which 
you know, there's incredible amount of profit being made from the militarization of police in inner cities, the weapons that are being used, um, and the surveillance technologies that are being used. So I think when we see police officers come out into the streets and beating up protesters, arresting protesters, when we see their, you know, new killings being resulting um, in, out of these protests, we are not surprised. It is, in fact, a, a confirmation of the exact reason why we are out on the streets to begin with. Absolutely. Do you feel that it's also, in some ways, silenced the critics that once thought that such expressions or no, like political lines, were radical? Dare I say, even extreme? That actually the mood has shifted because people are far more alert to that the, the response by the state, the very violent response. I'm um, sorry, Millie, I, you cut out, so I didn't hear you. Apologies. I, I was just saying that, do you feel that um, this time around, particularly uh, having gone through the wave of Black Lives Matter movements back in 2014, that, uh, critics have been silenced in terms of, you know, the, the often characterization of these perspectives as being radical, even extreme, um, that now they're actually seeing the nature of these institutions, that this is systematic, that this is, you know, um, this, this has a long-standing history. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when, when the Movement for Black Lives was created in 2014, it was also off of the heels of so many other uh, Black liberation movements um, in the history in, the, in this country. You know, uh, we, we, it's so hard to segment at what point we can say that the Movement for Black Lives really took place. But what we currently know is the Movement for Black Lives, uh, responding to the murder of Mike Brown and Ferguson, um, responding to the murder of Trayvon Martin, that movement at the time, you know, people were arguing that it's radical, that it's, um, you know, concepts of defunding police or even abolition of police was impossible or utopic. And they were really written off. Um, and I think that that's part of the problem, that the fact that community-based organizers and have been written off for so long um, has resulted in the lack of systemic change uh, in different um, on different levels. And so I think now it's so unavoidable because there's being a line drawn in the sand where people are being asked whether they stand with justice and freedom for all people or whether they're going to be complicit in a system that uh, oppresses people, that strips people of wealth, rights, dignity, freedoms, and protections in order to maintain a system of, you know, white supremacy or white privilege. And so I think that Right now, there is kind of a mainstreaming of the language that the movement for Black Lives has been, you know, trying to advance for so long. But there's also a lot of danger with that. Like on the one hand, we see politicians taking a knee. We see the NFL and big corporations making all of these different claims about how they support Black Lives Matter or how they support um, justice and freedom for all people. And we see, you know, real estate companies changing the names of the master bedroom. And all of these, um, you know, Mark Lamont Hill just did a video. All of these are signs that, you know, maybe there is a sort of social, social cultural, psychological change in how we understand race and, and racial injustice in this country. But on the other hand, it doesn't address the fundamental issues of, um, protection, justice, freedom, and a redistribution of wealth, land, and power for Black communities and other communities who have been exploited and stripped of their rights and dignity for so long in this country.
Thank you for that. Marcia, uh, you've joined some of the demonstrations that have been taking place in London. Uh, at times, the UK is accused of being slightly behind on these questions. Did you feel, how did you feel being out amongst the thousands uh, that took to Parliament Square? Do you feel there's been a shift in the political conversation and that actually a lot more uh, are conscious of the fact that this is as much a UK problem as it is a US one? Hi, sorry. Yes, well, certainly this is, this is a great shift um, globally, really. Uh, and I think initially the, the, the protests in the United Kingdom, the Black Lives Matter protests, they were protesting for, for, for George. Um, and this is something that's happened before where we protested in the United Kingdom on behalf of the families and the deaths in the USA. So it's very important to raise the platform that deaths do actually happen here in the United Kingdom as well. And they have been um, happening for decades, similar to the way that George died, that everybody could see worldwide. And I think, I think it's because that somebody videoed it um, and, and put it online, the fact that everybody was on lockdown and you know, were focused online platforms, that it just went absolutely um, global. But it's nothing new where somebody dies on camera. For instance, my brother died, died on camera. Um, and there's many other families in the UK where families have died on camera and using the words, I cannot breathe. Um, I recall going to um, the United States and meeting actual families where I was invited by um, the co-founder of um, Black Lives Matter, Patrice um, Cummers. And um, alongside the support of um, Defend the Right to Protest and NUS students, which uh, Mali was um, the head of at that time. And we went to um, the United States as four families, the families of Mark Duggan, Kingsley Burrell and Leon Patterson and myself. And we shared our stories with American families. Now, they hadn't even heard of Mark Duggan. They hadn't heard of the, the, the London riots and um, I felt that um, the people in America were completely oblivious as to what is actually happening outside of, of, of the United States. What was extraordinary to, the, to them was the fact that so many people were dying in the United Kingdom and they were shocked to realise that not all police officers in the United Kingdom actually carry, carry guns. Um, and so they found that really alarming that somebody could actually restrain somebody in a position like a chokehold, like, for instance, um, Rashman Charles that died um, in 2017, I think, in the United Kingdom, where he was caught on CCTV in the shop that he was entering, where he, 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 had a, he was given a chokehold and we actually see him um, die on camera. Um, nothing happened to, to, to those officers. And um, the inquest found that it was, um, I think they found that it, it was an, an accident. Um, but I don't think somebody being choked to death is an actual accident or being restrained in the prone position for a certain amount of minutes. Because that is something, just like we saw of the video of um, George Floyd, it takes, you know, a certain type of person, I think, to 
to be on somebody's neck or to be in that position on anywhere on their body to restrict breathing for a certain amount of minutes is, is quite alarming. And, 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 you know, in the United Kingdom, the systemic failures and the patterns in all of the cases is that, and the, and the it's extraordinary, really. It's not a coincidence. Um, it's, it's, it's deliberate. They're there to, to do their job, the system. But um, somebody, somebody's loved one is dying here. The fact that somebody can restrain, be restrained for, for seven minutes, my brother, for instance, Sean Rigg, for seven minutes, and after 11 years of, of a legal challenge, a fair legal challenge that I gave them, you know, I fought them fair and square, the end result was that um, it was not excessive. So somebody can be restrained for a certain amount of minutes and die, and that is not deemed to be excessive. How, how can that be? It's, 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 it's extraordinary. And, and so the families in America were really alarmed and shocked by this, that in the United Kingdom, deaths like this have been happening for decades. Absolutely. And how, how important do you feel that that exchange was in terms like from sharing the stories to even, you know, developing practices of resistance, um, looking at, uh, I remember that you um, had even met with the American Civil Liberties Union by who were um, demonstrating some of the apps that they use around policing the police, um, that you connected with uh, um, families that had like led a huge mobilization in Washington. How important do you feel that that transnational exchange and solidarity was? Um, and do you feel that it's still relevant today and it's something that we have to maintain? Yes, it, it, was, absolutely, it was absolutely vital that um, we shared stories with other families. Um, it's not uncommon for families to feel isolated you know, that's one of the, the things that happens in, in a legal case where the families are, are told that they should not discuss the case with anybody um, and that it would jeopardise uh, the case. Um, but in reality, what that does is it jeopardises their case. That was my experience in terms of my own case and, and listening to other families. The fact that this is a global issue, it is important that families um meet globally and speak globally because what we what we learn is that the systemic patterns are almost identical um the fact that when lloyd uh, when george floyd died the initial um report was that the autopsy report was that he died of underlying issues some medical issue that he may have had this is something that happens here. And if the family don't get a private autopsy, which is usually in stark contrast, you know, um, because they try to say that the restraint had nothing, oops, sorry. They try to say that the restraint had nothing um, to do with the death necessarily. If they can use that argument, they absolutely would. Um, and so, the, the similarities in all of the cases were extraordinary. And, and so it is vital meeting other families um, and deciding, you know, how can we make a, a real difference globally? 
how can we bring a public outcry because the public's interest carries a hell of a lot of weight in cases like these where it, it serves as a purpose to to put pressure added pressure on the government to to really do something constructive and make real change so far that hasn't happened we have so many deaths that have you know that's on camera with compelling evidence um, for all to see uh, and yet not one single officer in the united kingdom has ever been convicted of a death in custody why is that that in itself does not balance you know if you've got over 2000 deaths um and zero convictions how can that in itself balance out so it is vital to to meet other families like um there was um the family of um what was the gent auntie uncle bobby and oscar grant oscar oscar grant and they have a coalition of of families as well you know we have the united families and friends campaign in the united kingdom which is a coalition of families not just black families black families but also white families because they do it to poor working class families too so this affects everybody um, really and meeting the other families they thought it was really point important that families were actually coming together sharing their experiences realizing that their case was not isolated and and realizing that you know that the system is corrupt the fact that in america families receive compensation in the tune of millions millions um in stark contrast um uk families do not receive that in fact what they what happens is that they don't get automatic legal funding um, whereas um, agents of the state get unlimited public funding from the public first purse that could cost millions millions and even billions um which is a battlefield which is unbalanced because we don't have the funding for it and families are severely and heavily means tested in order to um find out how they loved one to get legal representation um at, at an inquest an inquisition in the united kingdom we have what's called a, an inquest which is not a judicial um it's not a criminal jurisdiction it's just a fact finding um court mm -hmm. to find out who died where how and when but there's nothing criminal attributed to it now in the past we've had unlawful killing verdicts uh, i think there's been 10 or 11 unlawful killing verdicts in the united kingdom um which means that there was some criminality found and and that should um, propel there to be an automatic um, prosecution of that officer um more recently and certainly when my brother died 12 years ago um it's more used in the narrative verdict so a narrative verdict is not to the same criminal standard as an unlawful killing verdict um and it can highlight all the the neglects and the and the um any criminality any misconduct but the wording has to be careful they cannot use wording that brings any criminality to any of the officers um even yeah. though a, a jury might see that so they may come back with saying like in my brother's death that the actions or the of the officers or the inactions more than minimally contributed to their death but effectively it doesn't make any difference you know if a jury an ordinary 
members of the public can see that. And I believe in my brother's case, if they were given the option by the coroner for an unlawful killing verdict, that's what it, it would have been. I think that it, you've highlighted that the, the, the question of justice um, that is undoubtedly bound in the resistance to these institutions and this form of state violence um, is incredibly long and arduous and, and at times, um, you know, some of us forget um, that the, the long-term battles and traumas that are carried by families and disproportionately by black families, um, uh, you know, uh, across both countries and, um, and many others. And I think that uh, what we, in, I remember in 2014, uh, when the masses were taken to the streets, um, that it was made clear that this was not a moment, that it, this was a movement. And I think that that was so crucial um, in, uh, in highlighting um, that, in, in, in making clear, in declaring that this struggle is a lengthy one that by no means started then, uh, nor would necessarily end um, uh, with that particular uprising. Um, and I guess a question to you both, and I'll perhaps start with uh, Lubna, um, is how, how are we able to sustain uh, the momentum of this period? How, we, um, how are those who are mobilizing um, how can that solidarity and support be continued? Because Lubna, as you highlighted very well, people have been doing this for, for decades, arguably hundreds of years. This resistance is nothing new and certainly not for black communities around the world. Um, and so I'd be interested to hear your, your views on this. Yeah, um, thank you for that, that really um, important question. And, um, and thank you. I, I mean, I think I think one of the things that's really important, as you said, that in 2014, when um, the movement for Black Lives was really um, being inaugurated and they called it a movement and not a moment, that was because so much patience had run dry, right? So it was, um, you know, over 50 years past the civil rights passage of 65, um, you know, over a term into the first presidency of a black president in the United States. And yet we had the largest waves of um, black people getting imprisoned in the United States um, and really incredible amounts of violence against people of color, whether it's within U.S. cities, in U.S. schools, or at the borders. And so I think that one of the things when we talk about how can we keep this moment sustainable, unfortunately, um, one of the things that makes it sustainable is that it's necessary, right? So that the violence is continuing, the violence is not letting up, um, the survival of people is dependent on, on, on this movement. It is not an extracurricular activity. Um, it is about life and death. Um, and I think that one of the things that is really important um, in this particular moment is that it did take almost 
10 years um, of, of these mobilizations to get to a moment where we could say, it's not about one cop, it's not about one incident. The reason why the murder of George Floyd struck such a nerve, uh, struck, struck such a chord in this country is because it resonated with people, that it felt familiar to people, that we had seen this before, that we had seen the suffocation in the murder of Eric Garner, that we had seen um, like this kind of brutality, this kind of um, vigilant killing, unapologetic killing happen in other places and other periods where we made noise, where we had a response. And yet still, we're not seeing systemic change in, you know, being implemented in any way. And so I think that what, what's really important in this particular moment is that people are saying it's not just about the cops. It's about how we understand the state in this country. It is about renaming, you know, boulevards and avenues that are named after people who committed genocide against indigenous people. It's about renaming um, monumental sites and schools after people who were, um, who had held some of the largest settlement um, slave plantations. So I think that these are like, there's a reworking of how we understand the history of this country that we need to, a, a real movement that's saying we need to stop glorifying um, white supremacists, glorifying um, settlers who have so much blood on their hands and start having a more comprehensive, um, nuanced and honest appraisal of history and how it's led to this current moment. Um, one of those things in a really practical way is thinking about how we went from you know, racial chattel slavery to the Jim and Jane Crow segregation era to the civil rights moment of the 60s, black power and civil rights moment. I think we've lost you, Lubna. I think whilst we wait for, for Lubna to reconnect is it better now there you are yes <laughs> okay um, to send the question i'm really sorry about the connection problem i'm not sure what's happening but um yeah i i just wanted to wrap up by saying i think that one of one of the things that's really important in this appraisal that we're having in this current moment to help us make this movement sustainable is to really understand what happened after the civil rights era um, and the black power era of the 60s. That is really making people revisit how in the very moment that black America was supposed to have attained their freedom in the 1960s, um, their efforts were sabotaged in a very co-opted neoliberal um, way where, okay, we're going to end formal du jour segregation, but we are going to rapidly expand um, the growth of the prison system. And we are going to rapidly grow policing in inner cities. And we are going to do this alongside, uh, you know, creating new legislation that criminalizes things that were formerly not considered criminalized. And that is the way that Black communities and other communities of color and indigenous communities ended up being um, subjects of in, in, increased state violence in the very moment that um, all of these formal official laws of racial oppression were supposed to have been banished from our history. So us having that appraisal in that moment is allowing us to see 
more clearly when we're being duped what, by the state, when we're being, um, when, when politicians are paying lip service to us, talking about equality and diversity and equity, but not really willing to hold police accountable, not really willing to invest in community services and mental health programs um, instead of in, investing in increased policing. Um, and I, so I think that's really important about this moment. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thinking of, of the UK context, often we hear inquiry and then another inquiry and then another inquiry. And I know Marcia and the UFFC um, are probably so incredibly sick and tired um, uh, of hearing yet another investigation is going to take place when so much evidence um, is, is already there. And Theresa May, uh, uh, the former prime minister, um, had proposed, an, well, had, had commissioned an inquiry into debts in custody and perhaps Marcia uh, could speak a little more about this, whilst at the same time amplifying policies like, like the hostile environment, um, where the uh, Windrush, uh, which, you know, uh, uh, the Windrush scandal highlighted perfectly in terms of its uh, targeting of migrants, of black communities um, over such a lengthy period of time. And so th the total contradiction in that uh, and the irony um, was quite frankly unbearable. What, what were your thoughts around this, Marcy, and how, uh, what do you envisage is also going to be a response from the UK um, in its current state as we're seeing institutions and political figures kneeling uh, on social media, even using the hashtag of Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah, I find that quite hypocritical, actually, because I know the, the British government, like, for instance, um, Boris Johnson, has made comment um, about the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement that he supports it in the United States. You know, um, there's also uh, Keir Starmer, um, his opposition, who has recently said that um, this, is, this is just a moment, that Black Lives Matter is just a moment. It's quite extraordinary, actually, because both of them are aware that there are dead bodies buried in the United Kingdom and they died at the hands of the state. And they don't seem to be acknowledging the fact that the deaths are happening here publicly, but they are aware of them. So that's, um, that's why it's important that we have discussions like this and, and, and families share their stories in order to put the pressure on the government to, to first of all acknowledge that the deaths happen here. We've had reviews, like so, and uh, the Angelina Review, which, which was the first um, report, I believe, um, from the Home Office on the issues of deaths in custody. And there was an inquiry um, following a, a meeting that myself and the mother of Shaney Lewis, where there was a summit in, in, summit in uh, Westminster, which we gate crashed. And, and they were talking about this very, very issue. And of course, we put questions to the panel, which was um, the then Home Secretary, um, Theresa May, and who was then became the prime minister and other um, MPs. And, and, you know, we argued, we were the only um, family that were actually in that room. It was full of police and mental health um, nurses and stake, other stakeholders talking about families like mine, but no family was, was invited. And so um, by, by doing that act of basically gate crashing it, 
um, afforded us um, an invitation from um, Theresa May to her, to her office, where we, we came along with the Charity Inquest, which is an independent charity that works with families whose loved ones have died at the hands of the state and, and help them through the, the inquest process, the inquisition process, the coroner's um, process, and, and some other families. And we shared our stories with Theresa May. And one of the things I remember saying to her, because once your loved one dies in state custody, the body is seized by the state. The body belongs to the state. And for a family to, to see their loved one, to identify their body, um, are, are they, are they, is it them that are actually dead, um, is difficult. Because the state... The body belongs to the state. They will conduct an autopsy and, and the majority of families have actually um, received this. And I said to Teresa May, Teresa, could you imagine um, your loved one dies, in, dies because we all experience death in our families and the fact that you can't see the body and you're being told that the body belongs to the state and you just want to hug them, you want to kiss them, you need to... You need to, you know, it's the start of the grieving process. And, um, and, and, and she acknowledged that that was, that was important. The fact that families are given decomposed bodies for burial. My, my brother was after seven weeks, we was given back his body. And he was, you know, decomposed. Decomposed that he had to have a special body suit on because his body fluids would have, um, seeped into his, his clothing and his casket. These are the stories, these are the emotional sides that the families experience that need to be told. You know, when we, we, we've just gone through, um, we're going through a pandemic, even the pandemic couldn't hold back protesters going out on the street, the way that this issue is, is so important, important and, and in, affects all of us. Um, in COVID-19 deaths, the disproportionality of black deaths, the fact that they couldn't breathe, the way that they've explained what it feels like if, you're, if you have um, COVID-19 and the fact that they feel that like they're dying and that they cannot breathe. This is something that deaths in custody families have been experiencing for decades. The fact that, that we are not given... Um, the fact of the COVID-19 deaths that the families could not be with their loved ones, you know, that they were buried alone with only a few people. You can't see that person. You don't know who's inside the casket. You don't know what clothing they were in. You don't know if body parts have been removed, because that also happens in the United Kingdom. And it just exacerbated the whole issue when George died. And, and, and I know personally that families um, were also being affected by COVID-19 deaths within their families. And so the mental health issues, the, the constant um, blow that families are always being given from death after death after death with com absolutely compelling evidence. There's reviews and recommendations, recommendations, lessons will be learned. What lessons need to be learned um, for such basic things that if you are on somebody's neck for eight minutes at least, that that person could die. It's, it's the mindset of the officers, the fact that everybody watched that CCTV and saw that that officer felt that he could actually do that without a care 
without any accountability, the fact that they are, can act with impunity. How can that be? Yeah. Our basic human right to life um, is not afforded by the very people that are there to serve the people. And so we can talk about, you know, changing names, street names and, you know, protesting and all of that. We've been doing it for decades, hundreds of years. There were deaths in custody hundreds of years when we were enslaved and chained and put in, and put in ships and, and carried across the Atlantic. There were deaths in custody. Nothing has changed. What we need is a real, genuine, political, moral will by the government to make effective change. Otherwise, it, it will never change. And, and, and so far, they have shown that they're not prepared to do that. They're prepared to spend millions and billions of pounds of the public purse to get these officers off. How, how can that be? The Windrush generation, the United Kingdom, my generation, my parents' generation that came to this country, that built this country, you know, that served this country and worked hard in this country um, after the, the, the war. And the fact that they were sending us back, the very children that have been here, worked and paid their taxes, done their schooling here, and were treated as immigrants, Yet um, an English person that, that emigrates to another country is not called an immigrant. They're just called an expat. Why? Are they more less human than us? According to the state, yes, apparently. The, the, well, the we black lives and the exploitation of black people is, it, it seeps into every aspect of our society. Um, and I think, like you said, that the... It is only through mass pressure from below um, that where in which people um, take into their own hands what the solutions are going to look like and what meeting demands and actually uh, 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 receiving justice um, and freedom um, is uh, and it, it can only be shaped um, by the people from below. I think um, I just to draw on some of the questions that are coming in from the audience. Uh, so slightly uh, uh, going back to the international perspective, um, somebody has asked how vital uh, do you deem internationalism to be, uh, especially considering uh, that we've seen the revival of quotes from Black Panthers, some of their methods around uh, addressing police violence, uh, other civil rights uh, figures, um, the importance of that history um, and the process of highlighting solidarity, whether it was with Palestine uh, or those seeking uh, uh, the liberation, uh, seeking anti-liberation uh, anti, uh, from uh, their colonizers um, has all somewhat resurfaced in the conversation uh, today, particularly since um, the, uh, uprisings um, in May. I wonder if you could draw on some of that, Lubna. Sure. Uh, thank you for such a great question. Um, I think I, I believe internationalism is 
incredibly vital. I think there's been so much in the United States among, for example, Arab communities, the community that I'm a part of, um, and Black communities, a lot of discussion about our relationship to one another and our orientation toward one, one another's causes. Um, you know, in, in the Palestinian community, the Palestinian youth movement, the group that I've worked with for so long, we have an unwavering commitment to joint struggle with all oppressed people, wherever they are in the world. Um, and, you know, that's not a transactional or conditional form of solidarity. That is an extension of solidarity because we see the pain and suffering and grief that other communities are going through, um, through our experience as Palestinians, as people who have lost our land to a settler colonial project, who have been pushed out of our land, for our brothers and sisters who have remained in our homeland, who are remaining under a brutal military occupation um, that destroys land as well as life uh, on the regular. So I think that that shared experience oftentimes does condition our solidarity with other causes and communities, but there's also a very practical examination of the systems of power that are oppressing us, whether in Palestine or the U.S. or the U.K. or in South Africa. These are Sorry, Lubna, we've lost you slightly. Lubna? <laughs> uh, is this... Oh, you're are back. We, we're back. Okay. I'm not sure where I cut off, but... Um, In terms of power. Yes. So these are, you know, whether it's in the U.S. or South Africa or the U.K. or Palestine, these are governments that are backed by corporations, backed with people with money that have deeply intimate bonds and friendships with one another across generations, across decades. They have shared tools with each other on how Our solidarity across the Atlantic may be strong, but it seems our internet connection, not so much. Maybe I'll go over to Marcia um, briefly around uh, this question of internationalism, especially if we remember um, around the uh, Ferguson um, uh, protests, um, people would chant from Ferguson to Palestine, occupation is a crime. Uh, we also saw, I know that UFFC is an incredibly diverse uh, coalition of families and uh, that you have worked alongside many groups seeking justice in many different uh, uh, forms. And I wonder, particularly drawing on like past struggles, many of us uh, come from nations that were colonized um, by Europe. Um, what your thoughts on that are? Yeah, um, what, um, what a controversy. I mean, it's, it's still so painful um, for us that we're still enslaved, basically. Modern day lynching, um, certainly in the United Kingdom, um, the slave masters received compensation, which was 
for the loss of earnings from the slaves. And that, that compensation wasn't finished and paid until 2015, 2015, where um, people in, 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 in Downing Street now and, and in Parliament now were, were receiving those funds from the very people you know that you know that they enslaved from in taxpayers taxpaying money they received that and but the, what did they put in its place when when um they say slavery was abolished it's because we had the prison system we had the the police system so we were still chained we were still on the plantations in prisons and so forth and this is global. This is in Europe. I mean, I've met families. Um, the name escapes me, um, but there's there's a case in um, Germany where they um, claim that this young brother burnt himself burnt himself to death in his cell. But he was chained. You know, he he'd been bounded down his legs and his feet in the, in his cell. How could he have got a lighter to? to burn himself, and that family has not received, received justice. The fact that the similarities internationally and globally are so similar, it really, it's really important that we have an international campaign Absolutely. to put for pressure on governments, just like we did when it was, you know, the slavery times, when the slaves had to fight for their struggles for freedom. We're, we're still enslaved now and it's important that we do it internationally because it affects, you know, the poor working class. You know, it, it, it affects the most vulnerable <coughs> mental health. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it really affects us all. And so it is it is boiling point it's a matter of urgency that we do this for our future generations you know our future generation you know the current generation the young generation are really awake and and learning about their history both black and white from from both sides this is all really important um lessons and education because it's always been hidden it's always been hidden, but now that it's coming out, you know, we really need, to, there really needs to be pressure. We cannot give up. If our ancestors had given up for the abolition of slavery, where would we be now? So we cannot, we cannot, um, um, I can't find the we cannot insult our previous activists and and civil rights activists and we cannot insult them by giving up yeah we have to keep going until we break the change and you know maybe they're thinking you know the you know the powers that be are thinking how can we how can we you know change the system it'd be interesting to see in terms of making them think that we've given them what they want and then put something else um, in its in its place, just like they have done now, but but how can you do that? It's changing the minds of our future generations, who will be the politicians, who will be um, the people that make change, and we really have to to work on them because 
even though if one police officer goes to prison anywhere in, in, in Europe or, you know, it's happened in the States, it's never happened here. It, it's not changed anything. Mm-hmm. It's not changed anything at all. So the system is working perfectly well as, yeah. to, as to how it was set up. Yeah. And it's completely immoral and unfair. Absolutely. And people just have to be strong to speak up and we connect together. When they see people connected, you know. That's when they run scared. That's when they may, may do something. You yeah. know, it takes a human story to change a human heart. And that's what we need to do today and always. Um, I see that Lovna's uh, back again. Perhaps we can pick up on the question of internationalism again, Lubna. Um, I... Uh, or you cut off, I I quoted the chants from 2014 uh, when uh, many would shout from Ferguson to Palestine, occupation is a crime. We saw the sharing of tactics from Palestine to uh, uh, US protesters about how to deal with, how to deal with tear gas, um, how to, uh, uh, how to effectively resist around some of the practices and tactics and, um, do you see that that to be the essence of internationalism today? Um, certainly. I mean, that was one of the things I was trying to allude to, that these systems, these states, these actors of power and oppression, they have deep, intimate bonds and relationships with one another. So the weapons that are being used in the streets of Ferguson, it's not unlikely that the weapons that were being used in the streets of Ferguson were also, you know, the same tear gas canisters that were being used in the Gaza Strip. But I think to go even deeper than that, aside from we have shared grief and we have, you know, our oppressors, our friends with each other, I think that there's something a little bit more nuanced. We have to be a little bit more nuanced about how we understand internationalism. Um, internationalism is about this extended solidarity working together in a joint struggle, even if we have distinct experiences and even if we have distinct struggles. So I think a lot of times people maybe are a little bit nervous of us talking about the global moment, right? The, you know, police killings across the world, uh, military killings in Palestine, for example, because there's this, you know, feeling of, um, but so much of this violence does is sourced in the history of anti-Black state violence and enslavement and, and segregation and in police violence against Black communities specifically. And I think that that's very important. But I also think in the, in the recent couple decades, it's very important to see how um, those histories of violence were learned by actors that were then re- reused on other communities and geographies in the world. Um, and then pushed back out to give new technologies and new instructions on increased killings. And I think Palestine is a really great example of that. Um, I think in the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 moment, the expansion of the war on terror, Israel really became a forerunner in this so-called war on terror. And that meant developing new weapons and surveillance technologies and, um, and crowd control techniques on Palestinian bodies and outsourcing it to the rest of the world. If between 2004 and... Lubna, I think we've lost you again.
Me back. Is it, is it is it better? Yes. Okay. So as I was saying, you know, the Israeli economy has increasingly grown dependent on international arms trade because it is a forerunner in in this kind of state violence industry. And so I think being able to see that um, we are against racist state violence in our domestic context, but also against empire and militarism and imperialism and occupation, like we cannot be against police killings but be okay with militaries invading Iraq and Afghanistan and slaughtering people across the world. That is unprincipled. It's unethical and it will never realize the freedom that we need. And simultaneously, we can't be against militarism and occupation, but be okay with racist state violence against a different community in the host states that we live in. I think it's so important to have reciprocal um, levels of solidarity with all communities because it's the only way we're collectively going to get free. It's also that the actually coalition building on these questions is as vital for our own movements that impact us personally or within our like particular communities um, as it is uh, a show of strength and an extension of uh, and recognition that actually your struggle is important and therefore I I want and need to put time in this. It, um, I think that the those links and as I think that often we come across issues around resourcing, even media attention, the way that the state knows how to pit movements and organizations against one another um, by effectively making them scramble uh, for uh, small crumbs. Um, and it becomes a, a, a thing of, well, this particular issue is being highlighted far more than my particular issue. And therefore I cannot be connected to it or address it in any way, shape or form. Um, and I think that, again, these are actually uh, tactics that have been utilized through powerful institutions for a very long time to ensure uh, the, the division um, of struggles um, and even, um, you know, and to blind people uh, into not realizing that actually the, the methods of repression are just being churned out um, um, uh, against each one of those um, uh, each one of those dissenting peoples mm -hmm. um, particularly uh, and so I on on that note uh, I wondered whether you had any thoughts on what internationalism could look like in light of this movement today which which point should we be stressing you mentioned the war on terror uh, which is often kind of uh, misunderstood to be a, a specifically Muslim issue or something that impacts the Arab world when in reality, particularly if we, if we look at the UK, uh, um, you know, the, 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 race, the, the, the process of racialization, the, that, that, the particular violence that is meted out um, uh, is, uh, impacts uh, many communities of color, migrants, uh, despite it obviously being trialed on uh, the exceptional um, Muslims, if you will. Yes, so I think um, the war on terror is one thing that we need to be accounting for in terms of the type of internationalism we need to be building in the contemporary context, but there is a lot more. I mean, I think one thing that's really important is to think about what is a people's internationalism that doesn't count on any nation state as our vanguard. We are not in the 1960s where we are split in a you know, Cold War context. We cannot expect 
money to be rolling in from an Eastern Bloc that has this project of anti-cap. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. And so I think some of these states that are you know, proposing themselves to be the anti-imperialist vanguard, they are deeply authoritarian, violent, oppressive, and not anti-capitalist. So I think the first thing we need to do when we think of interna the internationalism of our time is to think of a people-to-people -people solidarity, the people most affected by state violence, by global dispossession. I mean, we have 71 million people displaced worldwide as of 2019. That is the highest number in world history. So we have to think about the people affected by border expansion, police expansion, prison expansion, war and militarism, uh, by climate crisis, um, and by all of these different um, catastrophes that are enveloping the world. And so by us thinking in, in a people-to-people -people fashion and, and really trying to figure out how we think of, you know, this moment as an opportunity for a drastic overhaul of how we understand um, the systems that govern the world, right? Um, how we understand property, how we understand wealth, how we understand um, nation state borders, nation state systems. I think this, the crisis that we're enduring right now across the world is telling us that our current system doesn't work. And it's giving us an opportunity to envision the otherwise possible worlds that we could live in. But if we trap ourselves at very minor reforms or trap ourselves at thinking that we could, you know, address all of these things with um, paying lip service without real change, we're just going to be in this until it's no longer um, sustainable. So that's one of the things that I would say about the, the way that the internationalism of our moment has to look different from past generations. We need to be building out this vision as we're building out new types of structures for carrying out um, organizing work. Absolutely. Uh, and on that powerful note. Uh, oh, uh, sorry, Malia. Can I just say one thing real quick? I just wanted to say, um, Marcia, um, the role of Marcia and the role of so many other family advocates is so key in this. And I wanted to just say that just a few weeks ago, we held this webinar forum with Uncle Bobby, the uncle of Oscar Grant, who was killed on the BART police, uh, by the BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit Police in 2009 on New Year's Day. And he gave such incredible advice to the family of Iyad Halak, the Palestinian uh, man, the 32-year-old um, man in Palestine who was recently murdered just a few days after the murder of George Floyd by the Israeli police. And some of that advice was about grief and coping, but also about how to channel that grief and coping into advocacy. And I think that we really need to be, this internationalism needs to be taking lead from the family advocates who are such strong proponents um, uh, of the ethics and, and principles that we want to advance. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, I was going to ask whether there were... Um, uh, certain rallying calls that you both wanted to issue whether it's you know l locally nationally to your own countries but also to the international audiences that have tuned in during this webinar Marcia I think this is a really really important um, conversation and I think it will be absolutely brilliant if we could have another webinar like this with with the families internationally that would be very powerful 
and and the advice and strategies that families can can give is is second to none to another family member so i think that's that's that that's one thing um secondly i would like to tell you about the united families and friends campaign so for 20 years we marched to we gather at trafalgar square on the last saturday of every october so this year is going to be the 31st of october um where we families gather and they come with their banners and they tell their stories we might it's a memorial in remembrance of our loved ones it's not just an ordinary march protest march it's not actually a protest march it's a memorial procession and we we walk peacefully to to downing street outside and we tell our stories and people actually hear from the actual families i think something like this internationally would be phenomenal as well you know if we had a global day where all our loved ones um, are, are remembered um i think that would be really powerful um and what i've seen on the streets recently um for the black lives matter protests this is exactly the type of um, people that we need to see on the streets peacefully in remembrance of our loved ones to come out in the united kingdom not just for the american death but the 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 uk is so not innocent and to bring um to lock down the streets you know nationally if we could do that make it the biggest in history um because the ultimate insult that people get is a death a murder or killing of somebody's loved one is the ultimate um insult that that we get on top of all the other issues that we all received and and this would would bring a public outcry and and maybe can swing the hearts of the powers that be where legally they have no choice but to do something um about it because right now they just seem to be complacent and and certainly in the UK they seem to be ignoring the fact that the deaths have been happening here in the United Kingdom Absolutely. and so to raise that we need to do, we need to do that there's also the film injustice by Ken Farrow that supports who's the cal- one of the co-founders of the United Families and Friends campaign he made a film called injustice back in the 90s and it's the stories of 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 some of the um the 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 uk families where there were chokeholds and and Especially black women as well yeah and black women as well yeah and that um film was banned from tv in the united kingdom um so we currently have a petition for channel 4 to show that um film on british tv and there is a petition i i sent um the link so i don't know how you'll be able to get the links out for everybody to 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 sign this you can actually watch the film injustice online um it's on vimo by my um by migrant media and there are a number of films we have um the death of joy gardner who in the 90s was was a black woman who had overstayed her time um in the UK but she was a british citizen she was one of the the wimrush generation her mother was the wimrush generation where there was 13 feet of tape that was taped around her face in front of her 5 year old child 
um, and they've received, there's no, there's no justice, you know. So there's, there's these films, Who Polices the Police, Popo, Burn, Injustice, and Justice Denied. And these are, are, are really important that people should watch these and listen to the, to the, the voices of the families. It will make a difference. And so we want that to be shown on British TV. Thank you, Martin. And there's also a crowdfunder because we now have Injustice 2. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that it will be incredibly powerful. Um, and finally, Lubna, before we wrap up. Yes, yeah, so I just have two comments. Um, the first, of course, as many people know, Palestine is facing um, ex an extremely difficult time right now with the Trump administration rolling out the deal of the century and uh, the uh, is Israel preparing um, for continued annexation of the West Bank. So, of course, um, applying as much international pressure as possible, standing with Palestinian communities wherever they are in the world to mobilize against um, continued annexation and for the end to the occupation of our homeland and for the right of all refugees to return, um, especially as the situation is becoming more dire. Of course, the main call that people have out right now is for all communities to boycott, divest, and sanction um, Israel and uh, companies profiting from the occupation in Palestine. Um, the second thing that I would like to say about the United States, and I know that this is especially true um, for just general communities, even here in the U.S., people of color even, um, you know, there's this big fear around questions of defunding or abolishing police. And I think that part of that is because it's been so ingrained in us that um, crime, like there's this panic around crime being a natural component of the world. And we have a lot of racialized uh, um, assumptions about how crime takes place. Um, and in addition, we have a lot, we have a limited imagination about what could exist beyond the police. But there were periods of time and there are places in the world that have had healthy, thriving societies without the police presence um, that we have here. And in fact, it was in 1968, the very year of, you know, political insurgency in this country that a centralized police line was created to begin with to help contain that kind of political insurgency. So um, there are so many projects happening across the United States um, that provide real alternatives to policing, including um, how to do medical response, medical emergency response without having to call police, especially because we don't feel safe and protected by police. So you know, before jumping to conclusions about a police-free world not being a possibility, do the research, talk to people, look at these initiatives, and maybe it'll change your mind. Hopefully. Thank you so much. Thank you to both of our speakers and to you all for joining us. Um, and uh, yes, that's, that's the end of our fourth webinar. Uh, please do uh, check out the New Arab social media platforms for more information on future webinars um, and thanks again to um, the powerful voices that joined us this evening. Thank you.